emphasizing how great and how better he is than those past types because he is God's son himself in the flesh. So let's read Hebrews chapter 1. This is the word of God. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he, that is God, at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So far we read in God's Word this morning. And in light of that passage of Scripture, let's turn to Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. My intention is to preach on this Lord's Day two times. We're going to take the two questions and answers separately, consider Christ and then the Christian. So today is question and answer 31. Why is he called Christ, that is, anointed? Answer, because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption and to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal King, who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is an old saying, perhaps you've heard it before, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's an old saying that seems to make a lot of sense out of the world in which we live. If you know some history, you know that the people with absolute power have been the tyrants and the dictators who have caused a lot of trouble in the past. They are the Neros, the Stalins, who say things like, one death is a tragedy and a million deaths are a statistic. The Bible would seem to agree with the statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In the Old Testament, there was a division of powers. And if anybody tried to transgress that division, they would meet with divine judgment. You could be a prophet... You could be a priest, you could be a king, but you could not be all three. So when Isaiah the king tried to offer incense in the temple as a priest, God struck him with leprosy. 
And when King Saul offered a sacrifice, instead of waiting for Samuel, he was disowned by God, and his line came to a sad end. God would not allow any one man to accumulate absolute power. However, it's not true. The statement, it's not true that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because the problem is not with power. The problem is not with power. The problem is with the human heart that is given access to power. And the problem is not that this human heart is corrupted by gaining access to power. The problem is that the human heart is already corrupt so that it only uses the power to which it has access for evil. That's why the results are always the same because the human beings are all the same in this respect. Give absolute power to any man or to any woman and that person will become some form of a monster. Why? Because the heart of every human being is totally corrupt, totally depraved from birth. And that is why it is so important that absolute power be given only to one person. That is, to the one person who is worthy and capable of holding absolute power without being corrupted by it and in the exercise of it for the glory of God and the love of the neighbor. And that one and only person is Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, who was anointed by God above his fellows as the Christ. So I call our attention this morning to Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31. The theme for the sermon is believing in the Son's anointing. First, we will identify the office that was given to Jesus when he was anointed by the Spirit. Secondly, we will identify the greatness or the magnitude of this office. And then finally, we will conclude by showing that this is the one person, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of holding such a great office. So in the Old Testament, there were three main offices. First of all, there were the prophets. Now, you children can probably list off by name some of the prophets in the Bible stories. There was Elijah and Elisha. There was Isaiah. There was Jeremiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And you children probably know what the job of the prophet was. The job of the prophet was to speak. Sometimes he had to speak words that were hard for him to say and words that were hard for the people to hear. Sometimes the people became angry because what the prophet said hurt them, hurt their pride. Sometimes the people became so angry they even picked up stones and threw them at the prophet and even killed some of them. But still the prophet must speak. Because the job of the prophet is not just to tell the future. Sometimes people assume that that's what a prophet does. He tells the future. So much is that an assumption that prophesying almost has become a synonym for fortune telling in our own day and age. But that's not what prophesying is. To prophesy is to speak, and it is to speak the word of God as the truth. It is to speak the word of God with God's authority and on God's initiative, which is why the prophet always said, thus saith the Lord. And it didn't matter whether he was speaking in behalf of God with regard to the past, which sometimes happened, or if he was speaking on behalf of God with regard to the future, as sometimes happened, or if he was speaking on behalf of God with with respect to the present, which was probably the most frequent. The important thing is the prophet spoke the word of God in God's name and on God's authority. Then there were the priests. Maybe you don't know as many names of the priests, but there are some noteworthy priests. There's Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first high priest. And then there's Abiathar, who was the priest in the days when King David ruled over the kingdom, and then there was Zadok, the priest who, along with Nathan the prophet, anointed Solomon as the king, and maybe some other names you could come up with as well. The job of the priest 
in distinction from the prophet, was to act really as a mediator between God and his people. And that's why there was so much blood in the day-to-day labors of the priests in the Old Testament. The priest's job was to kill, to kill bulls, to kill goats, to kill sheep, to kill lambs on the altar in the temple, sometimes hundreds of them at a time, sometimes thousands of them at a time. Imagine how much blood was running over the paving stones in the temple when thousands of animals were slaughtered as when Solomon dedicated the temple. But what was the purpose of all that bloodshed? The purpose was to cover the sins of the people and by covering their sins to give them the right to stand before God in his house. When the priest entered the temple, as it were, the people of Israel went into the temple with him, he representing them. You remember the priest had specific garments that he wore, and one of the garments was the ephod, that, that metal breastplate that he wore over his chest. And on, on that breastplate, there were 12 stones of different colors representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel went into the house of God along with the priest who represented them and gave them the right of access through the blood that he shed on the altar. And then he made intercession for the people when he offered the incense on the altar of incense. In other words, the job of the priest was to consecrate God's people and to draw them into the fellowship with God, into his house, to stand under the light of his candlestick and to eat the bread of his table. And then there were the kings. The king's job was very straightforward and simple. But that does not mean it was an easy job. The job of the king, first of all, was to protect the people by defending the borders of the kingdom. That's why David was always at war, always had his sword drawn, always standing at the head of his army, always battling against the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the other enemies of Israel. He was defending and preserving the gains of the kingdom. But it wasn't only to go to battle against the enemies out there and to maintain the boundaries of the kingdom. There was also a job for the king within the boundaries of the kingdom, which was to maintain order and governance. He was to solve the disputes of the people. He was to act as the judge of the people. He was to punish the evildoer and to reward those who did well. You see Solomon functioning in this capacity, for example, when he has to use his great wisdom to solve this dispute between these two women who are fighting over one baby and over who was the mother of that baby. So the king, protect and govern the kingdom. Now in the Old Testament, these offices were never taken by the men who held them. That's how it goes in the heathen world. That's really how it goes in the world in which we live. Why is one man a king? Why is one man a man who holds power and another man a peasant? Well, it's because the man who became king was in the right place at the right time and he had the right set of skills to seize power. And God's providence stands behind that so that we must still recognize these men as rulers And as God's servant, nevertheless, there's a time and circumstance to it all. But in God's kingdom, office must always be given, not taken, but given, and given directly by God to the man who holds the office. Those who attempted to seize power in the Old Testament always, always came to a bad end. Think of Ahab bleeding out in his chariot in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy of judgment over him and his house after he was struck by a random arrow from a Syrian bow. Think of Jezebel getting eaten by the dogs. People who seized power, used it greedily, and contrary to God's will, came to a bad end. God does not allow men in his covenant to make themselves prophets, priests, and kings, or if they do, he judges them. 
God must take hold of the man and put him into the office and call him to serve him. And this was recognized in the Old Testament through the anointing with oil. We think that the oil was just oil, but there was actually a specific concoction that was put together according to the demands of the Old Testament law in the book of Exodus. The oil had to be mixed with certain spices, cinnamon and myrrh and cassia and other ingredients. And this specific mixture that must have smelled a certain way was forbidden to be made by anybody else or for any other purpose. It was the oil of anointing. And then there would be a specific ceremony of anointing in which that oil was poured out of a horn, a vessel, or a jar onto a man so that it ran down from the top of his head, down his hair, down his beard, all the way down the skirts of his clothes to his feet and to his toes. You read of that in Psalm 133, for example, in the description of the anointing of Aaron as high priest. And then, having been anointed, that man was recognized as the servant of God, ordained, that is, set aside by God to serve in the official capacity of prophet, priest, or king as God's representative in the kingdom. And it's not that any one of these offices was so important all by itself. It would not do, for example, only to have a prophet, because if you only had a prophet, soon that man, that one man, would be tempted to act as a king or as a priest. But rather... All three of these offices represent the whole way in which God cared for the whole person of each individual member of his kingdom. These offices are not just a random collection of offices, in other words, but they correspond to the way human nature is according to God's original creation of it. When God made man, he made man in his own image. That is, he made man to know him rightly, to live with him in holiness and to walk with him and to serve him in righteousness. Which is to say, when God made man originally, he made him a prophet and a priest and a king, knowing God, living with him in holiness and serving him in righteousness. So now when he redeems fallen man, draws him into his kingdom and covenant, and restores him to life in fellowship with God, he must restore him in all three of those capacities. And in order to do that, he designates these officers, prophets, priests, and kings. That was the Old Testament. But now let's look at Jesus, whom the Bible calls the Christ, the Anointed One. The Lord's Day says that Jesus is called Christ because he was ordained of God the Father. That first of all, he was ordained of God the Father, which means he was set aside by God for specific service, to act in a specific capacity and function. The chapter we read in the book of Hebrews alludes to this act of God in chapter 1 verse 2, he says that God in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. Notice there the prophetic office. But then he says, His Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So before there was any of us, before there was a world, God appointed, ordained, set aside his Son, to serve in this capacity as the Christ. And then already, in that ordination, God made the worlds by Him, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. That ordination of Jesus by the Father as Lord and Christ, therefore, is an eternal act of God. It goes back into the eternal decrees of the Lord. This really is the first decree of God, that Jesus, his son, would be Christ and would serve in this capacity. He was ordained of God. And then out of that first decree come all the other counsels and acts and wisdom of God. But then, having ordained his son to be Christ before all worlds, he anointed him. 
which means he realized that decree in time through a specific public visible act of anointing. He sent his son into the world with the name Jesus to be born of a virgin and to suffer life under the curse. But then after Jesus had been here for a certain amount of time, what did he do? He anointed him. He poured his spirit out upon him at his baptism. The baptism of Jesus was not only his baptism, you see, it was his anointing into office, the official beginning of his acts and as his, of his public ministry as the Messiah, the Christ of God. Sometimes people wonder if Jesus was a prophet and a priest and a king, if he was given the name Christ or Messiah, which means anointed one, why wasn't he ever anointed with oil? That seemed to be such a big and important thing in the Old Testament. David was anointed with oil. Aaron was anointed with oil. Why wasn't Jesus anointed with oil? But he was anointed. He was anointed by the Spirit directly, which that oil in the Old Testament was always pointing to and picturing and representing. It's as though God himself, not now a priest or a prophet, but God himself pours out his Spirit, emptying his horn of consecrating oil upon his Son, who descends upon him in the form of a dove and then pronounces him as having taken up his labors. This one, this one is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So you children need to understand something important. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not his family name, but it's his official title, and it's his job description. We speak of President Lincoln or King George, but we also speak of Jesus the Christ. It's his office. It's his work. And as the Christ, he was given the complete care over all the people of God. He is their Prophet and teacher, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And so the Lord's Day says that Jesus was anointed by God to be our prophet and teacher. Because the people of God who are redeemed and who are being restored unto life need to have knowledge. They need to know. They need to know their God. They need to know the will of their God. They need to know the mind of their God, the heart of their God. If they do not know their God, what are they? They're walking in darkness. They're walking in blindness of mind and in ignorance. If they do not know their God, then it's impossible to have God as their friend. How can you be friends with somebody who you do not even know? So God said, I need a prophet. I need a prophet to minister to my people, to speak to them, to speak for me, to make my glory and my goodness known unto my people, and to do so in such a way that they understand it, so that they understand who I am, and so that, that they can feel and experience the force and the power of my presence and of my glory. And Jesus, the Son of God, said, Here am I, send me. I will speak to them. I will be the prophet. I will give them the knowledge and the knowledge that only the Son of God knows and could ever know because only He dwells in the bosom of the Father. He's the prophet and the high priest. The people of God by nature are in a state of alienation. They've corrupted themselves. They made themselves filthy with sin in Adam and in their own deeds. So they need a way. They need a way back. Back to the garden of paradise. Back to the house of their father. They need a way forward. Into glory. Into life. And so God said, I need a priest. I need somebody who can deal with their sin. I need somebody who can deal with their sin so thoroughly that they can stand before me and stand before me without spot and without wrinkle. 
I need blood to be shed. I need satisfaction to be made. I need a priest. I need a sacrifice. I need a lamb. And Jesus said, I will go. I will go. I come. Oh, Father, I come. Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I come to do thy will. I will make a way. I will forge a way through, even if it is through the shedding of my own blood, even if it is through the breaking of my own body. I will be the priest. And he is the king. Oh, how those vulnerable sheep need a king. There are enemies on every side. Enemies. Beyond any of them. Enemies that make Goliath and the Philistines look like puppies in a pet store. A great dragon with a gaping mouth full of teeth called the devil and Satan who sits there, jaws gaping wide, ready to devour the souls of the people of God if they stray under his power. And he has a whole host of demons at his command and the Bible says the whole world is under his thumb so that he is the prince of the power of this world. And then there's the worst enemy of all, which is the enemy that is called me, myself, and I. Our old foolish nature, our proneness to love iniquity, to hate righteousness, to wander from the path. We need a king. The people of God need a king, a shepherd who knows them and who loves them and loves them both inside and outside. A king who has the power to fend off those enemies, both the enemies who wait and lurk on the outside and the enemy within. A king who is able, through the power of his grace, sweetly and powerfully to bend their will to his own will so that they are willing in the day of his power so that they are able truly to enjoy the benefits of that salvation that he earns for them as the Christ. That's the office that was given to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, Christ, Messiah. And what a great office it is. The greatness of this office on the one hand is that it brings all three of these offices into one. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is priest. Jesus is king, but he is not only prophet. And he is not only priest and he is not only king. But he is all three at once. It is sometimes said, and I've sometimes heard, that when Jesus was on earth, it was mostly his office of prophet that was seen and manifested. And I understand why it's said that way. But I don't think that that's really true. Because I don't think you can really do that with the office of Christ. You cannot separate these offices or these different aspects of the one office of Christ to emphasize one or the other. It's all three, all at once. He is always in all of his acts, fully prophet, fully priest, fully king, and all three of them all at once. And it has to be. Because as verse 3 says, that as the Christ, as the one who is appointed by God as heir of all things, he is the brightness of the glory of God and bears the express image of his person. He fully reveals who God is as the image, the express image of his person. Fully makes known the knowledge of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of of God. So the word of Jesus not only makes known the mind and will of God prophetically, but when Jesus speaks, he also speaks with the power and the authority of the king who commands angels who are his ministers. 
and who even makes the whole world continue to stand and continue to exist. And when he speaks as prophet and king, he also speaks as a priest, purging the hearts of his people from sin, declaring their righteousness, consecrating them, and making them to stand before their God. The same person speaking, but in the very word that he speaks, he exercises all three functions in the fullness of their capacity. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there not only to make a priestly sacrifice and to attain an atonement for the sins of God's people, but on the cross, as he was making that sacrifice, he was going to war against the devil to crush his head. And the superscription was written over his head, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And he revealed fully the mercy and the righteousness and the goodness and the truth of God, whose righteousness and truth are met together in the cross, making fully known the mind and will of God in his sacrifice, prophet, priest, and king. And when he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high, not only to reign as a king, but it is also from his position up there that he serves as our intercessor and as our advocate and ever liveth to make intercession for us as our high priest who is not untouched by the feeling of our infirmity. And from his position on high, he sends forth gifts unto men and makes captivity a captive so that we have prophets and apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers who make known the prophetic voice of Christ. Whenever he is king, he is also prophet and priest. And whenever he is prophet, he is also priest and king. And whenever he is king, he is also priest and prophet. What we have in Christ, therefore, is what was always forbidden for anyone else in the Old Testament. And forbidden with good reason. The heathen kings of that day were not so scrupulous about dividing powers and offices and authority. Those kings were happy to be priests and prophets as well as kings. And the result of these men accumulating power to themselves, is that they ended up proclaiming themselves as gods. They were men of flesh and blood, just like anybody else. And yet they proclaimed themselves as gods. Not just a priest, not just a prophet, not just a king, not just a servant of the gods, but I am God. And you will worship me as God, and you will listen to me as God. And you will receive me as God. Those were the pharaohs in Egypt. Those were the Caesars in Rome. I am God. Worship me as God, they said. That will be the Antichrist in the last day. And that is many rulers in our own time. Even if they don't proclaim it in those words, but it's clear in their behavior and their body language and their requirements. I'm God. Tyrants, dictators, that's what happens when fallen, depraved, sinful men are given absolute power, power over the mind, power over the will, power over the heart of the men over whom they rule. They become full of themselves and they make themselves into gods. The corrupt and evil hearts that every human being has, everyone has a corrupt and evil heart, but in a person who has that kind of power and that kind of influence, it becomes amplified. Nevertheless, Though it was always forbidden in the Old Testament for one man, for a Saul or an Isaiah, to accumulate all of this power, in Christ these offices are combined and they are handed over to him and handed over to him by none other than God himself. God appoints Jesus as the heir of all things. God gives Jesus power over all things in heaven and earth. 
God gives Jesus power over the angels. God makes Jesus all in all so that he can say to his disciples before he ascends, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. God grants him complete power and authority over his people, both inside and out, to shape them, to restore them after the pattern of the image of God, and to bring them into life and fellowship with him. He's not only a prophet or a priest or a king, but he's all of them, all at once, the express image of his Father, the the brightness of his glory. That's Christ. That's our Jesus. You can hardly overstate the greatness, the magnitude of this office, beloved. But there's even more to it than that. The greatness of the office of Christ is not only that he combines prophet, priest, and king into the one office of Christ, but it's also that he fulfills all of those other offices and really is the power that stands behind them all. We mentioned earlier that there were office bearers in the Old Testament. There were prophets like Elijah and Isaiah, and there were priests like Abiathar and Aaron, and there were kings like David and Solomon. And these men all held real offices, and they exercised authority in the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, and they were equipped in that by the Spirit. There are also office bearers in the New Testament. There are preachers and teachers who exercise the prophetic office by proclaiming and explaining and applying the Scriptures. And there are elders who act as kings, overseeing the life of God's people and defending them from errors that would creep in. And there are deacons who lead God's people in a life of service and sacrifice by giving and laying down their lives for the poor. And there are the believers in the church who we read later on in this Lord's Day, are in, the pro- are in the office of prophet, priest, and king, in a sense, being partakers of the anointing of Christ. There are all these office bearers, in other words, who have a real and important function in the history and in the co- of the covenant of God. And yet, though that's true, there's really only one office bearer in the ki- covenant and kingdom of God, and it's Jesus Christ. That's what is implied by that statement in verse 9. Thou, speaking of Christ, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Above thy fellows. That is above all the other office bearers all the other prophets, all the other priests, and all the other kings. And so above them, so above them, that Jesus is described in our Lord's day as the chief prophet and teacher. Chief. Because all those other prophets, the Elijahs and the Elishas, the Isaiahs and the Jeremiahs, all got their message from this prophet, the chief prophet Even those prophets who function in the Old Testament before the man Jesus Christ was born, nevertheless were moved by the Spirit of Christ and spake as they were moved by that Spirit. And everything that they said, everything that they proclaimed had to do with the revelation of Jesus Christ and prepared God's people for His coming. Jesus is the chief prophet because He reveals to us what only He, as the Son of God, could only ever know which is, according to the Lord's day, the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And he reveals it all to us, that secret counsel of God concerning our redemption, and assures us of all of it from election to the cross to regeneration to glorification. And he reveals it in such a way that we know it and in such a way that we embrace it by faith and live in the light of it. Beloved, I can preach to you and I can teach to you all day long as a, somebody who is exercising the prophetic function, but I cannot go into your heart and I cannot write those doctrines and those truths into your spirit and I cannot make you embrace them by a true and living faith, but Jesus Christ can and he does by his spirit. He's the chief prophet and he's the only high priest, the Lord's day says, And he's the only high priest because he made the only sacrifice that really counts for anything. 
All those sacrifices in the Old Testament, all that blood that was shed, all those bulls and sheep and goats who had their necks slit and their blood drained out on the temple floor. As the people of God watched that and considered about the cost of sin and the price of redemption, nevertheless, all that blood that was shed and all that death that happened didn't really count for anything. They were only pictures. Pictures designed by God to impress upon His people the seriousness of sin, but only pictures. They didn't satisfy for sin, which is why the priests had to keep offering those sacrifices again and again and again, because there was no end to it. But the sacrifice of Jesus purged away sin, according to verse 3 of Hebrews 1. Purged it away once and for all. And whereas all those priests in the Old Testament died and their prayers of intercession died with them, Jesus, our only high priest, ever lives before the Father to make intercession for his people. So much is that the case that even if I, as your pastor, should intercede for any one of you before the throne of grace, or if you should intercede for me, we always have to make our prayer in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, because really it's only his intercessory prayer that counts. And our prayers are only valid as they are made and offered in the blood of Christ. Chief and only prophet and priest and eternal king. David was a good king and a man after God's own heart for the 40 years in which he reigned. But David died. And so did all the good kings in the Old Testament whom the books of Kings and Chronicles said reigned like David and like their good fathers before them. And yet they died. And who came in their place often? Wicked kings, a wicked Manasseh who undid all the positive gains of Hezekiah, a foolish Jehoiachin who undid all the reforms of Josiah. But Jesus is an eternal king who sits on the throne of God with the power of God himself so that the father says to his glorified son in verse 8, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Thy throne is forever and ever. Eternal is thy kingdom, Lord. His gains will never be lost. His protection and defense of his kingdom will never be broken through. It doesn't matter how fierce the opposition or how powerful the devil. His power as king will never be taken from him. His reign is eternal, outstripping and outlasting the reign of any other king. Jesus Christ is everything, in other words, beloved. He's everything, If there is any prophet, priest, or king who does anything well, he does it under the banner of Jesus Christ and only under the banner of Jesus Christ and in his power. And if there is any prophet, priest, or king who stands opposed to Jesus Christ and his banner, he will be destroyed. For it is Christ who represents God. And it is Christ who who stands for the interests of the kingdom and covenant of God. Such is the greatness of his office. And beloved, we would have to be terrified, utterly terrified, if such a great office was given to anyone other than to the one to whom it was given. We know the results. We know them very well. When just a fraction of this kind of power falls into the hands of a lesser being. Either it crushes that person because the weight of it is too much for them to bear and they choke under the pressure. And the king runs away from his duties and he allows the kingdom to crumble and the people to starve while he hides away. Or it inflates their ego 
And they become monsters and tyrants who are greedy, greedy, greedy of more and more power, always more power, not so they can use it to serve God, not so they can use it to serve the people over whom they rule, but so they can use it to serve themselves and their own interests and their own glory and their own name, so that they can say what Nebuchadnezzar said as they look out over, the, over their little kingdoms, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom, for the honor of my majesty and for the might of my power. Those are the effects when such power and such influence falls into the hands of lesser beings because such men are not worthy. They're not worthy. They do not have the moral capacity to to be given this kind of honor, the kind of honor that's given to Christ. It will go to their heads. It will create in them an attitude of arrogance and superiority that is not commensurate to what they actually are as creatures of the dust. And so they will make an idol out of their own glory, out of their own name, and out of their own pride. But it's not just that they don't have the moral capacity. They don't even have the actual capacity to exercise this kind of power. Power that is absolute. Power that circumscribes every facet of life inside and out. There is not a man. There is not a woman. There is not an angel or a demon. There is not any creature who is worthy to hold such power. Not you, not me, not anyone. Not the smartest, cleverest, strongest, bravest man alive. All would be crushed and devoured. And we would be crushed and devoured under their rule. Do you remember John the Apostle? In a vision in the throne room of heaven, weeping, weeping, weeping. Because he saw that book sealed with seven seals in the hand of the the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was none found worthy in heaven or in earth to take the book out of his hand. Who will take the book? Who is worthy? Who has the capacity not to be consumed by this task? Not to be utterly corrupted. He was weeping. And he was weeping not only because no one was found worthy, but because this task is so crucial, so important. If that book is not opened, if the office of Christ is not fulfilled and executed, then there is no salvation. And there is no life, and there is no coming back to the house of God. There is no being restored in his image. There is only death. No one on earth is found worthy for this task, except for one. Jesus, the Son of God, he can bear it. He can bear it, and he does bear it every day, beloved, for you. He does. Absolute power he holds over you, over your life, over the lives of your children, over the lives of the people out there walking in unbelief, whether they know it and recognize it or not. Absolute power over the angels, absolute power over the demons, over the devil himself. He can bear it. And he can bear the honor too. He can be proclaimed Lord of Lords and King of Kings without it making him into a petty tyrant. He can be lifted up to the highest position of power, to the right hand of the majesty on high, and not become arrogant. Because remember who we're talking about here, beloved. Remember who we're talking about. This is that person. That person who had it all. He's the Son of God, living forever with His Father in glory, and yet He emptied Himself of that glory. He took upon Himself the form of a servant, and being found in fashion of a man, He humbled Himself unto death, even to the death of the cross, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He can bear it, beloved. He's a man of such humility, such meekness, the Son of God. Believe in Him. Believe in the power of His anointing. Look up to Him. Be thankful for who and what He is, 
for who and what he does, for, or for what he does every day for you and in your behalf. Trust in him. Walk with him. Follow behind him. He is the Christ. He and he alone. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for this person, this one person whom thou hast anointed with oil of gladness above his fellows, above all of us. And we are not envious, O Father. No, we are joyful. We give thee thanks that thou hast lifted him up, this person who has loved us, who gave himself for us. And now we pray, O Father, that, we, that thou wilt strengthen our faith in him, that we may walk clinging closely to him, that we may live hearing his voice and the revelation of God that he gives through prophets and teachers and through thy word, and that we may trust in the power of his sacrifice, his finished work that, that declares our righteousness and our place of safety in thy covenant and that we may follow his lead, trust in his protection and of his power to defend us both inside and and without, and that we may submit unto and yield unto lovingly and willingly his grace as he goes to work within our very hearts to, to mold us and shape us after the fashion of thy image and to restore us to covenant life with Thee. We pray, O Father, let the work of Jesus Christ be effective in our lives and in the lives of this congregation, and let the glory of His reign and of His power expand and extend throughout the whole world until He comes again. O Father, forgive all of our sins. Forgive us for not living every day mindful of the greatness of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Strengthen our faith and walk with us in days to come. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.